Welcome to PR for Humans with me, Mike Sargent, the podcast for people who want to cut through in business and communications. We're talking to those I admire most in the industry, hearing their communication secrets and stories. I'll be using some of their insights in the book I'm writing about the best storytellers in the business. Please do reach out to me through my website, prforhumans.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. Today's guest is Rupert Younger, co-founder and managing partner of Finsbury, one of the most successful of the city communications agencies, now part of a global platform with 500 consultants and 16 offices around the world. Rupert is also the founding director of the Oxford University Centre for Corporate Reputation and co-author of The Reputation Game. He's one of the foremost global thinkers on the subject of how reputations are created, sustained, destroyed and rebuilt. So buckle in and enjoy his fascinating insights. Rupert, thanks for finding the time for this conversation. Um, Let's start by talking about your work at the Oxford University Centre for Corporate Reputation. Um, What exactly does that centre do, first of all? We are a research centre that looks at how reputations are created, sustained, destroyed and rebuilt. So the life cycle, if you like, of reputation formation and destruction. Um, We're primarily a research centre, so about 70% of our time is research. We do teach on the MBA at Oxford and I do some executive education as well. Okay, let's... um just take a big a big step back and and ask you right reputation a lot of people in the communications world talk about it um, very few people probably actually study it in any kind of academic or, or rigorous way and that's what you're trying to do yeah um, I think it's a I think it's a really modern and relevant subject to study um, reputation is the is the oil in the economy it's the it's what Um, underpins trust and interpersonal relationships Um, it's what underpins most contracts when you actually take a look at how contracts work in practice they rely on um, uh, on on obligations being met in practice they and, and 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 a lot of all of the constructs that are built around the interactions we have in business are basically based on reputational analysis so as a subject I think it's a very, very modern and important one. And, of course, for us, it was a gaping gap in terms of what was available in academia. So we filled um, a hugely productive gap and are now the leading research centre on reputation in the world. Yeah, because a lot of people kind of have, a, have an idea of who they think has got a good reputation or which companies have got a bad reputation. But, but how do you actually kind of measure it? How do you, you analyse it in a meaningful way? So the first thing is that there is no it. Um, reputation is not singular. Right. Organisations have multiple reputations for something with someone. Uh, Goldman Sachs has a great reputation for being a wonderful place to work, but it has perhaps a worse reputation with the American public for being a vampire squid on the face of humanity. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that was the famous mm. Rolling Stone mm. quote, um, not mine. Mm. Um, so there are multiple reputations at play, and each of those particular reputations delivers some advantages. If you have a great reputation as being a place to work, to build your career like Goldman Sachs does, it means you attract better talent. So that's how you start to measure the impact of your reputations by attaching them to the specific outcomes in question. And is your reputation simply the sum of everything you've done in the past and all the different people working in your organisation? Or, or is there some concept that we can think of as reputation that, that is, is like a wrapper on the company? 
Yeah, so um, again, uh, the idea of bringing all these different reputations together into one single reputation is wrong-headed. It makes no sense to do that. If you think about two negative reputations being added to two positive reputations, you put them together and you've got a net zero, that doesn't really tell you anything about a company or indeed an individual. Organizations, and we as um, individuals throughout humanity, have been very, very alive to these multiple characters, multiple utilities of all of us as individuals, and we're the same about companies. We think that some companies we may buy from, but we wouldn't work for, mm. and, and vice versa. So this idea of multiple reputations in different spheres is critically important to the understanding of this. And so what does that mean for the efforts to manage reputation that so many in the, the PR and communications world, and that is what they are ultimately selling? How, how do you manage um, the reputation of an organisation if there are so many different bits of the reputation in that uh, in that offer. So it's a great question, and I'd start by saying that anyone who starts by thinking they can manage reputation is doomed to failure. Yes, the idea that you that that you can manage something that's a, that is fundamentally a relational construct is just not right. Uh, reputations are conferred on you by others. What you can do as an organisation is you can engage with your reputation. You can have strategies uh, which you can employ to try and engage the right reputations that you want to try and deliver those reputations. And really, this is where our research has been, I think, sort of groundbreaking and I think very helpful, is that we've identified three drivers that are within your control, but which influence reputation. They don't mean you can manage it, but you can influence it. The first is your behaviour. You need to behave in a certain way because those behaviours will send signals now, the signalling power of what you do has many examples. Take a look at the tax examples, Starbucks, Amazon and Google in 2013. They all played, paid no tax. The signal being sent by that behaviour was, depending on which point of view you have, one, what a bunch of non-societal, uh, greedy, selfish firms, or two, what a smart group of lawyers and accountants they must have working for them. Okay? So the signalling power of your behaviour is point one. Point two, and this is the area which I think ties in with sociology and the work that's done in sociology, is that reputation flows in and through and between networks. So analysing the type of network that surrounds you is of critical importance to understanding how you build the reputations that you want. If a family would be a good example of a tight, closed network, but information in a family, I'm not talking about yours or mine necessarily, moves very fast and it's highly trusted. In a non-family environment, information might move more slowly and needs more proof points. That's two examples of different networks where reputations are going to be formed very differently. And the third is then the more traditional PR area, which is your narrative. How you talk about yourself matters today, especially in a world where self-publishing has become the norm. And um, here we are in, in, in Finsbury, um, the, the communications agency that, that you um, uh, established in the 90... Mid-90s. Mid-90s. Um, co-founded. Co-founded, uh, along with Roden Rudd. Roden. Um, what does your analysis of reputation tell you about the practical work of an agency like this? I mean, how, how do you translate these ideas and these, these three areas that you've identified into a plan that could be implemented by a team within an agency? 
So I think the, the clarity of those three engagement mechanisms makes it much, much easier to then implement reputation programs in practice. Um, here, what we've done is we've focused our, uh, our lens on achieving outcomes. So what is it that we are trying to achieve for a client? Uh, is it to sell more beer if we're a beer company? Is it to, um, to succeed in winning a contract if you're a property company? Reputation and communication strategies should be aimed at that. So thinking about the outcome for them and then looking at the reputations that deliver that. So if you're a um, property company, which reputations are going to deliver you the particular opportunity that you want? Once you've established that, you can then play back into what behaviours, what networks, and what narratives. So those, those, those three concepts then become the, the structured and disciplined way of thinking about delivering a programme. So engaging with those concepts, but, but not not talking about direct management of the eventual outcome. In terms You're of hoping to influence it, influence and it if you do it really well, then that, that influence should be pretty effective, yeah. And in terms of building reputations from scratch, if, if it's a, a newly established company, is that any different to um, looking after or trying to influence the reputation of a company that's well established in, in the public eye? Are there... Yeah, there's some very interesting research. In fact, the book that I've just co-published with David Waller, um, who works at FTI Consulting, actually another another big agency. Um, uh, so we've just published a book called The Reputation Game. And one of the mechanisms in there that we talk about is uh, what is different in the reputation game when you have no uh, history. Um, so newly found firms. And in that sense, you use techniques like reputation borrowing. So, for example, if I'm a new tech startup, if I get funding from Andreessen Horowitz or from another one of these very, very well-established venture capital firms, that becomes a behavioural signal, again, of the quality of me as an organisation or me as a management team. Uh, lots of other funders, all they'll look at is whether or not those prime funders have taken a stance. And so I borrow my reputation from them. Um, there's a lot of those type of techniques in the book. And some of the techniques for established companies are very different to those techniques for fast, up-and-coming growth companies. And if your reputation has been smashed by a crisis, um, you know, whether it's something like the, I don't know, the VW emissions scandal, the BP Deepwater Horizon, or whatever it is, um, what's your advice in terms of rebuilding reputation if something's gone wrong? Well, one of the big changes in the last 15 years has been the availability of uh, and cost of very fast broadband. And that means that everyone is connected much, much more closely, much more quickly with everyone else. So 20, 30 years ago, you could probably have separate strategies for dealing with different stakeholders in a crisis. Now, you have a time-poor and an information-poor environment with everyone clamouring for the same information quickly. So the key lesson today, I think, in a crisis is respond quickly because any form of uh, delay will be a behavioural signal that you don't know what you're doing. Um, you don't need to focus on the outcomes. You've got to focus on what you're doing about it um, uh, because people accept that mistakes are made, but what they don't accept is that you're not taking the event seriously or, or indeed responding well. So act quickly, say what you're doing to rectify, and focus on the injured party. That's something which... I will, or just be human. I think that's a word which you very rarely hear in business, but it's a very important word, especially in crisis. Yes, and it's something that, that we're very focused on in this, in this podcast, is 
is the idea of, of PR for humans and, and what this, all of this means for the individual, perhaps a CEO at the top of a business or, or senior people within the business. How does the, the individual um, go about influencing, improving their own reputation? Is it different from the approach you might use with a company? Funnily enough, it's not, actually. There's exactly the same technique supply. Um, uh, one of the things that obviously has more, perhaps more power in that trilogy would be the, um, the way that they can personally use narrative. If, if people have a very persuasive, commanding use of language, they can often get away with having less productive networks or probably they can get away with less behavioural signals. So the idea as an individual and a leader of having a strong uh, and well-honed ability to communicate and connect, uh, uh, that is probably the, the, the sort of weighting difference when you're dealing with individuals as opposed to companies where armies of people write things. And um, in the corporate communications world, we're, we're, we're concerned often with the, the reputation, the corporate reputation of the company, rather than its appeal to uh, the customers or the people who might be buying the, the products. Um, is, is there a, is, presumably there are different forms of reputation um, for, in the consumer's mind or in perhaps a business partner's mind or investor's mind. But as, as you say, such is the nature of, of the digital channels now that there needs to be, I guess, some consistency across the piece when we're talking about Yeah, I mean, I think audiences. you have to celebrate the differences, but there has to be consistency between them. So um, your reputation with customers, certain reputations are going to matter more. Um, quality of service, um, uh, the quality of the product. Um, but equally with other people like regulators or investors, they're going to be focused on maybe governance and transparency. One of the, again, of the insights from our research, which I brought to the book, uh, was this idea of these two dimensions of reputation. Um, we all look at organisations, and in fact at individuals and our friends, through two lenses. The first is capability. How capable is that organisation? Does it make great products? Can I rely on it for, for the right type of service and after service? Is the advice being given really strong? That's the capability aspect. And the second element is character, which is not about how good the product is, but how do you go about the work that you do? What type of an organisation are you? And that becomes a heuristic, a sort of very clear mental path as to what to expect in the future. So if you happen to be a bad organisation making great products. I'm not going to trust you because I still think you're a bad organisation, but I may like your products. One of, without casting any particular aspersions, one of the sectors that has suffered from that strong capability, bad character, is banking. Very high capability, which is why customers still use them, but very poor character, which is why they've been distrusted by regulators, dumped by employees... Uh, distrusted by investors and the costs of dealing with that are now pretty large. Um, so uh, it's a really interesting insight, this separation between capability reputations and character reputations. It's a crucial insight. Mm. It's fascinating. And, and there's an awful lot of talk these days about the purpose in, in, in business and the kind of the why, you know, that why does the company exist? Why are you doing what you're doing? And is it important to have a, a, an effective um, uh, reputation or powerful reputation is it, is it important to show purpose uh, beyond we, we exist just to make money but here's, 
here's, here's our identity, here's what drives us, here's what we believe in. Are, are those things important beyond just a sort of mission statement on a website? You have to presumably have to run through a business. Industry. Clearly, yes. Um, and I'd say clearly yes for two reasons. One is that any, um, any, any organisation now is subjected to an enormous amount of scrutiny around authenticity. How actually do they behave uh, and do they believe what they're saying? So I think this idea of not having any real uh, set of values or purpose would be very quickly underpinned, uh, very quickly um, unearthed, if you like, and seen as being a big gap in their offer. But the more important driver is that actually customers, employees, and actually to an extent also regulators and investors are now demanding that organisations have very clear values and purposes against which they could be judged. And that might be because, as a customer, I want to know what type of an organisation this is. Will they employ the right people? Will they pay, pay their suppliers well? If I buy this particular product, has it disadvantaged a community somewhere? Or it may be as an employee, I'm thinking about, do I really want to spend my time? And do I want to be attached to this type of an organisation? If I'm a regulator, actually, is this company at risk? Is this going to, up, to upset the balance and cause systemic problems? And if I'm government, then maybe actually this is where I think about what, where should I intervene or not? So I think values and purposes, uh, values and corporate purpose are extremely important now for organisations. And it mustn't be lipstick. It has to be something which they fundamentally live and breathe throughout their operations. Otherwise, you come back to the first problem of inauthenticity. Yeah, and it can't, it can't just be a, a, a corporate social responsibility program over there, which is trying to offset everything no, and else I over think, here. I mean, I we're think, way past all of that. I think CSR, CSR was, a, was, was, a, was something which I think has got, itself has got a bad name. I mean, it, when mm. CSR, the S got dropped, it became CR. S came back as sustainability. I regard any sort of attempt to separate that out as being slightly wrong-headed. If you're properly living that, you embed it in your operations report and you make it clear that this is driving efficiencies, cost savings, uh, customer engagement, employee retention, and regulatory dividends. And you make it a, a clear part of your operating culture, not a separate, nice-to-have um, you know, uh, check box to tick. And as you said, you, you, you built up um, Finsbury. And what... what um what advice would you have for other people who may be listening to this, who, who, who might be running companies or, 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 or startups or setting things up, trying to grow things? I mean, presumably you have to kind of build a bit of thinking about reputation in from, from the word go. Um, and what, are there any sort of simple things that we could all be doing um, to have a better reputational perception of us in the marketplace? I mean, I think rather than thinking about the word reputation, which is more of an outcome, I think that you should think about what's the ecosystem in which you're operating. Um, how do I build the right place for employees to, to, to attract the right employees? How do I make sure that my customers know why I'm distinctive? Um, that's something that every entrepreneur, every business is, 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 is intensely and rightly interested in. And if you're thinking about those things, you need to think about what reputations do I want? What is going to enable that distinctive customer proposition? How do I get a customer to think of me in a certain way? How do I get an employee to think of me in a certain way? And that brings you straight into the whole area of your ecosystem and how you engage with the different audiences. And that's what reputation is all about. 
Rupert, it's a fascinating subject and thank you so much uh, for your time and for joining me on the podcast. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. What really interested me about that conversation with Rupert is the intense rigour and analysis he brings to the subject of reputation, which can so often feel like such a hard concept to measure or say anything sensible about. That's it for this edition. Please do tune in again next time for the PR for Humans podcast with me, Mike Sargent. Visit prforhumans.com and please do share a link with anyone else you think might be interested. Thanks very much for your time. Goodbye.